Good evening. I am Fabian Anderson, the Director of Christian Education here at Christ Central, and I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker tonight. I met Dr. Viana Sindo in Cape Town, South Africa, earlier this year. And within the first day of meeting him, I couldn't decide if he was a Hebrew scholar, a Greek scholar, biblical studies scholar, or Christian leadership scholar. Turns out he's all of them. He is a very gifted, um, God-gifted teacher and scholar, and we are in a treat for, we're in for a treat tonight. I think the best way I can set you up for what you're about to experience is to share a story. So within like the first morning of meeting uh, Bunani, the team who went to South Africa, we were all sitting at breakfast. And uh, if you know a little bit what I, what I do here, I taught Hebrews the past year. So I taught through the book of Hebrews. And of course, casually at breakfast, he's just like rattling off everything he knows about Hebrews. And I'm like, oh, great, I'll ask a question. And so I was like, uh, so who do you think wrote the book of Hebrews? Because in my study, the very beginning of it, we kind of go back and forth. It's like who the author might be since the book is anonymous. And he says, well, you know, that question really undermines the whole story, the whole book. Like that doesn't really get at the point of the entire book. And I'm like, that's a complete fail, Fabian. Um, and he said, he said, but I get it. That's such a Western question. You know, higher criticism really wants you to get at who authored the book and when was it written, trying to get all of those biographical details down. He said, but the story of Hebrews is that constantly repeating like the Holy Spirit said and the Holy Spirit said. So the whole point is that God is the author of the book. And I'm like, that's amazing. That's brilliant. I mean, I had something quirky to say, like a black Hebrew, I mean, a black um, pastor wrote the book because this rhythm and the cadence and the repetition. But, you know, that makes sense. God, of course. God wrote Hebrews. But in that moment, what I got was like, my perspective is one way, Western, and he brings a different perspective. So what you're about to hear on Christian leadership, I need you to, for a moment, see if you can step back and examine the lens through which you hear and learn and consider leadership, and then make space for Dr. Viani to come in and really explore your paradigms. It'll be great. It'll be great fun. Um, so without further ado, Dr. Viani, come on up. Let's try it again. Good evening, everyone. I almost said morning because it's morning back home, <laughs> and my body feels like I should be in bed. So, uh, but it's wonderful to be with you uh, this evening. Uh, it was just a great joy to have Fabian and Daniel in Cape Town, just spoiling them uh, and getting to know them, and for them to get to know our beautiful city. Uh, so, I thought Fabian was going to tell the embarrassing part of the story. Uh, about leadership, but I won't repeat it. I was having a discussion with, uh, with Daniel about leadership, and then I said something, and I was criticizing it. And then I turned to Daniel and said, oh, by the way, is that, what do you do in your church? He's like, yep, I do exactly what you just said. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, I, put it, I, I just put the food in my mouth. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it was shocking when he said, okay, when you come, can you talk about leadership and identity? And this evening, I just want to focus on the need for Christian leaders to be both prototypes and entrepreneurs of Christian identity. Uh, but before we do that, I notice at times you can speak to people. You think you're all on the same page, but you're actually talking about different things. So please help me. Just turn to your neighbor a little bit. Uh, we'll just spend two minutes on this thing. The group of threes, uh, please discuss the following. What is a, what is a leader? I mean, we use this term every day, right? I'm the leader. I'm in charge, right? My wife, I, at times I assume at home I'm in charge, but my kids told me the other day, no, mommy is. <laughs> so please uh, turn to your neighbor and say, what is a leader? And who are, who are the great influences when you consider leadership? For those of you who are young, when you grow up, who do you want to be like? So just for two minutes on that one.
Okay, for the sake of time, uh, Fabian warned me, said, Viani, this is not Africa, so you have to keep to the schedule. So, unfortunately, I have to break, like, you know, sorry, Fabian, I had to get back to you. Uh, so, I have to break your conversations a little bit. I want us to first consider what some literature tell, tend to tell us about leadership, and then I'll do what I did with Daniel. Hopefully, it will work today. Uh, so, a couple of definitions about leadership. Um, some people define leadership, uh, uh, leadership is defined as the ability to influence, motivate, enable others to contribute to the effectiveness and success of an organization in which they belong, right? Did you notice the emphasis there is the ability to influence, right? So a leader is someone who has influence in this definition. Uh, McFarland says a leader is the one who makes things happen. I love that, right? Someone who makes things happen, that will not happen otherwise. I.e., we can't survive without leaders, at least according to this definition. And then John Maxwell says, leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. It's influence. Now, if you are like me, the first thing that comes to my mind when I look at all these definitions, well, how do you do influence? I mean, after all, we have influencers. They have some content on, <laughs> is it TikTok? Is that influence? Uh, so what is influence? How do you influence people? Now, of course, most leadership literature on focus that. They will say in order, there are four key ingredients to influence people. But I think there are actually three, but someone had to write a PhD and come with something else. I'll show you now why I think there's three, not four. So the first one is strategy. They said the leader must employ tactics that lead to success. So a leader has to be, in South African slang, like he has to be clever, like, you know. He has to, I mean, look at the next one. Timing, creativity, and discipline are crucial skills for leadership. So, I mean, you know some of the billionaires, they just had a good timing. I mean, Jeff Bezos was just right there, and they had a good timing, and he's a multi-billionaire. And then, of course, the other, said, the other thing you need in order to influence people is shared goals. Uh, if you, if part of the job of the leader is to move people somewhere. That's why we want to be led, right? We want to go somewhere, and hopefully we all agree about where we are going as a group. So it's influence. And then the other issue, especially among Christian writers, they say you need in order to be a good leader is character. Leadership has everything to do with a character. Because I'm not sure if you have ever met some of your heroes. I mean, you meet your, you, you look at them online, they're wonderful singers. You meet them in person, they are terrible. You just don't want anything to do with them. So character matters in leadership. And then the one part that many people on leadership focus on is vision. They will say vision. I mean, whether you are secular, even job interviews, when you are going to, I'm not sure how you do interviews here in the U.S., but in South Africa, the first thing, what's your vision for this particular position? And vision tends to be emphasized as a key now, vision for Christian leaders is a big thing, right? Because Christian leaders have this tendency to say their vision is God's given. They speak for God, <laughs> right? Of course, I prayed, I fasted, God told me, this is where we are going. And that's what tends to happen. Now, if I had more time, but I'm under strict control, 
I was going to make you, uh, by the way, if you uh, are familiar with Aristotle, you'll notice that three of these things are part of what Aristotle says is required for good rhetoric to persuade an audience. He said you need logos, ethos, and pathos. All of those are actually described in those. There's nothing new under the sun. People just write it differently. So Aristotle had this many years ago. So one of the things I'll have asked you to say, what do you think are the dangers associated with this emphasis on shared goals, this emphasis on vision? But you won't have time to discuss it. So I'll tell you my take on it. <laughs> okay, so I think one of the things that tends to happen, if you notice, it encourages this heroic paradigm. Remember the one who says, a leader is the one who gets things done. That otherwise will not happen. So a leader becomes this great person that we all should look up to you. I think the other thing, what for me is also interesting, is the emphasis on the person of the leader instead of us as a group. It's always that one individual who stands above others. Now, John Adels tells you, actually, one of the terrible things you can do in the leader, in your vocabulary, is to use the word I. He said, what is the least important word the lead in the leader's vocabulary is the word I. It should actually always the word we. But it's that's easily said than done. Because we are reading all this literature that tells us about the vision. And that has led to some consequences. And I'm coming back to that just now. And I think for me, the other problem as well with this heroic paradigm, it seems to be against scripture. Let me give you a, te a text that many of you might be familiar. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. Paul thinking about himself. I mean, Paul, I'm a Pauline scholar, and the guy is hard to understand. This is Paul's perspective on who he is. He says, what is then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to you. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. Paul didn't say, I'm the guy you got there who got things done that otherwise would not get done. <laughs> He's not the guy who said, listen, it's all about my vision. Do, do you notice the humility? He said, actually, he says, I'm the slave. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, instead of I, Paul, who's the great apostle, he said, I become all things to all men so that I might win them for the sake of the gospel. And then, of course, this great apostle Paul, what is one of the big things he's driving for in the book of Corinthians, chapter 12? We are the body of Christ. There is no important members. We are all members that are gifted by the Lord through his Holy Spirit for the common good. But yet, when we read Christian books on leadership, it creates this elitism. The some are cut above the rest. But yet when you read scriptures, Paul wants us to actually be careful. Look at what he said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Say, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Just in case you are tempted to get it, like, you know, I'm so important. He says, they are not anything, but only God gives growth. So Paul looks at his ministry, he planted all these churches, and this kind of thinking, he has a sober judgment, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a nobody. You know, I love that hymn, I can't sing. If I was to sing, I'll move you guys out of the church. But you know that song, I'm just a nobody, trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save everybody? That's, that's Paul. He didn't get it to his head that I'm the guy who influences everyone. So that's a one of the dangers I think is associated with it. Also, sometimes we need to think carefully about our visions. You know, when you read the books, I mean, John Maxwell, when he teaches on vision, when you are at the edge of your seat, it has to be a big, audacious, hairy goal. And then you get pumped up. I need to have the big, audacious, hairy goal. But the reality is, 
Paul again. I mean, Paul is like that guy. You bring him in a party. He just... <laughs> like, I mean, First Corinthians chapter 4, he comes and says, Therefore, do not charge anything before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. And that time, each will receive their, their praises from God. Some, I mean, I'm from George Whitfield College. I mean, you have to understand how difficult that is. Like George Whitfield College. Every time I go somewhere, people ask me, did I get the name properly? George, he's a hero. That's why we named him the college George Whitfield. And then we discover later on, oh, there's this side we didn't know about the guy. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I'm so sorry, we didn't know. But yet, again, Christian leaders, because we have this hero paradigm, at times we have this exaggerated view of our leaders, and we forget that actually we should have a bigger view of God than them. They are just slaves. Have you noticed when you go to the restaurant, you don't fight a lot with the waiter. You call for the manager. Like, the food is not nice. You know what the waiter's job? I'm so sorry, sir. I'm so sorry, madam. Let me call the manager. It's God's church. We are God's people. And therefore, he should actually, he should be the one who's the hero. Not us most times. I think also one of the big problems that I found recently in this emphasis we tend to have in leadership books is the fact that they encourage, for me, I think, the personality cults. The people with the big, audacious, hairy goals uh, who can resource and sell these big, audacious goals, we tend to want to follow them. By the way, the word to follow, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I don't think it's a great translation of 1 Corinthians chapters 1, verse 12. The best way should be is what Paul says, is that these people are claiming to belong to Paul. They are claiming to belong to Apollos. They are claiming to belong to Cephas. And just in case you think we are twisting the scriptures, the same Greek words are used, for example, in Acts 27, verse 23. But instead of Paul, there's God. And in Acts 27, verse 23, we don't translate it as, I follow God. We translate it as, I belong to God. You see, the issue in Corinth, the people were identifying too much with the Christian leaders and not a lot with Jesus. They were influenced by the Sophist movement. In the Sophist movement, the goal of the pupil was to do whatever the teacher said. And I feel like we are caught into that. At times I laugh at how you see people attending churches, the dress code change a little bit. You know, you come as an, as an African, and sometimes in churches you come with your tie, you know, you, you, you're formal, and then you get to church, you realize everyone wears shorts, and then you all wear shorts, and then you think one day, hey, when my grandmother comes, oh, I'm wearing shorts at church, it's going to be a problem. And at times it can be very problematic if we follow people than following Jesus. And that's what the issue in Corinth. The problem in Corinth, these people were bickering with each other. There was schism, there was division. And if we follow people, particularly for you here in the U.S. next year, Christian leaders might say things about which party to vote for. I don't know your politics, so please don't shoot me. <laughs> Christian leaders at times turn and say to people, oh yeah, if you are godly, you have to go with these people. And then at times you look, but the character, show me the Bible, I don't see it. But sometimes we follow people than following Jesus. And this was an issue for the Apostle Paul. And I think part of the issue is the culture that we have around leadership, where we have these heroes that they tell us everything to do, and we don't actually question them in light of scriptures. I'm not saying be rebellious against your leaders, we should obey those in authority, but we should always look at what scriptures say and follow Jesus, not them. They are the servants. The best way to think of your pastor is that they are the waiters at the restaurant. Jesus is the manager. 
And they all are to report to him, and we are to report to him. But also, one of the things I saw, which breaks my heart recently, because of the leadership styles we have adopted, is the abuse in the church. I saw Chuck DeGruch in his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, he says at times we choose wrong people to be in ministry. We choose people who are narcissistic. Because we are looking at people who can provide us with the big, audacious, hairy goals. People who have the... Sometimes we don't even look in terms of character in light of scripture. We tend to confuse character with charisma. Sometimes I think Paul will not have got a job in America or in Africa for that matter. I mean, remember Paul's CV? He preaches, someone falls off the roof, breaks their neck, they are dead. <laughs> Employ him as your pastor. But we have been so much worldly when we choose leaders at times that I think we forget what God tells us how Christian leaders look like. And what is interesting for me, even the great prophet Samuel did not get this thing right. Remember Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6 to 13, he needs to anoint David, but he sees David's elder brother, and he says to him, oh man, this one surely is the Lord's anointed. And God said, no, no, no. Man, look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I think we have lost that in churches sometimes, where we look at actually the outward appearance and forget how God judges leadership. I think the other thing we tend to forget when we consider leadership studies is the fact that the church is different from the world. Leadership from the world is anthropocentric, it's man-centered. Leadership in the church is theocentric, it's God-centered. As a New Testament scholar, one of the things that's fascinating for me is actually just look at the lexicon for leadership, the Ahon terminology in the Greek. And you know what's interesting about the Ahon terminology in the Greek? Besides the book of Hebrews, Fabian, only once, it's used for Christian leaders. The New Testament makes it clear, and Jesus knows this terminology in Luke and also in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, you know how the leaders of the Gentiles lord it over them, but not so with you. And then he doesn't say Christian leaders ought to be. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be the slave of all. And then Paul, interestingly as well, he knows this terminology. In Romans, he refers to the secular leaders, and he says we should obey them, so pay your taxes, don't hide them. So he says we should obey secular leaders, but Paul never uses the Ahon terminology for Christian leaders. Because Christian leaders are different. In fact, he uses a terminology that was not attractive. Images of pastoring the sheep, being a shepherd of God's people. Which shows us when you think of Christian leadership, is something that is completely different from how the world is. Lisa, how am I doing for time? Ten minutes. Okay, I need to go through this very fast. So I want to propose a new way of considering leadership. And this new way is influenced by, it's a called a new psychology of leadership. Uh, it's influenced by various scholars such as Stephanie Richer, Michael Plateau, Kim Peters, and Nick Stephens. And I think this new way of leadership and how we perceive leadership is important, particularly in light of what we see in churches in our day and age. So many people are hurt by Christians, not only in the church, but even in companies. You know, once I was so heartbroken, I, I, I meet this young lady in town, I give them a lift, and then I see one of the church members and I said, hey, that guy's from my church. And she's like, really? Is he a Christian? Him. He's my boss. Is he a Christian? She could not reconcile, and this guy was leading a Bible study. And I think when we look at what's happening in the world, we need a new way of considering leadership. 
We know of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I'm not sure if you listened to one of those tapes when everyone clapped at the conference of pastors, when Mark Risco was talking about the importance of the vision, using the bus illustration, he said, get on the bus, or the bus is going to get over you. And when we are done, there are lots of dead people behind the bus, pushing vision, because he thought that's how we influence. And I think we need a new way of considering leadership. We need a new way that is going to be concerned about us. The group identity, the winners. In Africa, we call this Ubuntu. Uh, I think it's Doc, uh, who was a Celtics coach, Bolton Celtics. He used this Ubuntu philosophy for his team in order them to win the championship for the first time in ages. Where it is, I am because we are. It's not about me as a leader, it's about us as God's people. People, I mean, how many of you just, the church has a wonderful vision, but how many of you, before you joined this church, you first compared the visions of different churches in Riley and in Durham and said you'll choose this church? Hands up, please. So there are only two people, three, who, who did that research. Many people join churches because they feel welcomed. They feel loved. They feel they belong. But yet sometimes in Christian leadership, we don't look at how people feel in the church. We focus too much on the big vision. So this new psychology says we need to actually look at how people do, but because of time, I'm going to skip a couple of things and talk a little bit about group prototype. I th okay. 10 minutes. So group prototypes. So Christian leaders need to be group prototypes. What do I mean by that? Is that the Christian leader, group prototypicality is viewed as the ability in representing the unique qualities that define a group and what it means to be a member of the group. Embodying core attributes of the group, that makes a group special as well as distinct from others. And what was interesting for me, meeting Daniel, not to make him blush, was how meeting him and Fabian, I saw people who embody what they say their vision is. People who embody the love for both the community and also their heart and passion to create a multicultural, multi-ethnic community that is under the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what actually group prototypicality is about, is that we need leaders who are what they say. Christian leaders who don't say, do what I say, but who can say like the Apostle Paul, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. How many fathers can like to say that to their sons? being a leader at home, like the Apostle Paul, twice in the book of 1 Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. But you know, there's a power to group prototypicality. Nelson Mandela, for example, in South Africa, came uh, 1994, we have our elections. Uh, South Africa was oppressed and everyone felt we just won the Rugby World Cup and the big symbol for the African, uh, African government then was the spring box. So normally the, flower, the, the, the symbol of South Africa is a protea, but the spring box was a sign of the oppressors. So you have to imagine how hard it was for South Africans to embrace the spring box. But Nelson Mandela, because he embodied forgiveness, after all, who in South Africa and say I've been in jail for 27 years to fight for freedom? He walked in the room full of people and said, the Springbok is staying in Springboks. And no one, there was no discerning voice. Everyone believed it. Not only that, he embraced that identity and he wore the colors of his oppressors and was the first president to hand a trophy to the people that were the symbol of oppression to him. That moved the entire country 
because he embodied what he said, we are a forgiving nation. But sometimes Christian leaders is something that's missing. We talk about forgiveness and the times you don't find in the church. We talk about love and then you come to the church, you find judgment. And one of the things I think we don't emphasize enough is the fact that we need people who embody what they teach. And this is what the studies have shown. Leaders are more effective and more likely to be influential. Because remember, everyone wants to influence. But if you are perceived by people as sharing their common social identity and embody their values, people will follow you. And that's how many people can influence. But this is also dangerous. Because sometimes you also have to ask yourself, who am I following? Because that reveals a lot about what you hold dearly in your heart as well. But more people are more likely to follow those people. Leaders need to be seen as one of us, not one of them. And I think this is where American politics, if I might say, with all due respect as a visitor, gets very nasty sometimes. Sometimes I used to love American debates where people were looking at policies. But I'm, I'm struggling to find it because people are so trying to prove I'm not like them to the point where you don't know what they stand for. But the new psychology of leadership says you need to know what people stand for and they ought to embody who we are. Now in South Africa, we have one of the greatest presidents who failed on this thing, only Lisa will know. And I'm not going to talk about how George Bush won against Al, Al, Al Gore, because in the, state, the study has been done in the US that in 2000 elections, Al Gore, in, standard, in terms of the IQ, not me, the research says, Haslam, they say that in terms of, the, everyone said the leaders have to be clever, and they have to have a high Q. They've done a study on this. But when Al Gore came to the scene, people could not connect with him. But people could connect with Bush. And they saw Bush as one of them. And there were more votes for him. That's what the studies have shown. In South Africa, on the far left there, we have a man by the name of uh, Tabom Begi, who was one of the brilliant leaders of our country. He grew the country in terms of the economy and created more middle class. But he lost to a gentleman on the right-hand side who did not even have high school. The problem that Tamumbeki did, which shows the dangers if you are not a group prototype, he came across as an Englishman. He loved his pipe, even had a hat, and he loved his suit and ties, and he carried a briefcase. And for many South Africans, he was seen as a representative of the old oppressors. But on the other side, Zuma came in. Zuma came dancing, like South Africans love to dance. And he wore the Zulu regeria, one of the biggest tribes in South Africa. And he won against a guy who is educated from London School of Economics and beat him. Because people who are voting saw him as one of us. So I think sometimes as Christian leaders, we need to work hard on actually embodying what we do. So let's go to the Apostle Paul quickly. The, one of the things the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians, because there's a danger of embodiment and group identity, he first reminds the Corinthians what is their identity based on, which is something we tend to forget as Christians. Christian identity is not based on culture. Christian identity is not based on skin color. Christian identity is not even based on the church you are part of. Christian identity is based on your response to the message of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you respond to this message positively, Paul says you are one of us. If you respond to this message negatively, Paul says you are one of them. So what Paul does in the first chapter of Corinthians is to distinguish the in-group from the out-group. 
The in-group is not the Jews. The in-group is not the Gentiles. The in-group is those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this, Paul says, is based on the foolishness of the cross. And then in chapter 2, he has to show them how he embodies that long message of the cross. He said when he came to them, he did not come with lofty speech, which is what the Corinthians were looking for, but he came in weakness so that their faith might rest on the power of the cross. He says, I, I resolved to know nothing, even though Paul was the most educated apostle out there. He said, I, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. And he goes on to say, he did not use wisdom of this world because the wisdom of this world has been brought to nothing. Yet my fear is that many Christian leaders are using the wisdom of this world to think they can build God's church. The other thing Paul helps in the first Corinthians, because of Thomas to skip other things, is to help the church understand their identity. The church in Corinth, they thought they belonged to Paul. The church in Corinth, they thought they belonged to Peter. But it's interesting, the first thing Paul reminds the church in Corinth is that they are the church of God. They don't belong to Peter. They don't belong to Paul. That's a, and throughout the book of Corinthians, both in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 10, verse 32, and, and, and chapter 11, verse 16, Paul reminds the church in Corinth, you are the church of God in Corinth. Not the church of Corinth. Your primary identity, you belong to God. And then he reminds, as if that's not good, I mean, to belong to God, that's wonderful. But God, Paul goes on to spell this out. He says about the church, those sanctified in Jesus Christ, those who are and called to be saints together with everyone, to be the church of God who are to be marked by holiness, not by anything else, holiness, not the scandals we see our leaders have, Holiness. That's what it means to be the church of God. But notice what Paul does in 1 Corinthians as well. He reminds them they are the part of the global church. Sometimes we can be so inward looking as Christians. It's only our Christ central, right? We are Christ central and not look out there. But look at what Paul says. Called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And by that, Paul established an in, clear in-group identity. We are part of the global church. We are part of the global village of God's people. And these people who we are, are to be marked by the fact that we belong to God, not to our leaders, are to be marked by the fact that our lives are consistent. What we say at church is what is seen at home. Sometimes you can be a Christian leader at church, but at home you can be a dictator, a tyrant. That's not what Paul says we are called for. And he spells that out throughout the rest of the book of Corinthians, how our lives ought to be different from those around us. I think for the sake of time, I'll wrap it there. I didn't go over time. Thank you. We're now going to do Q&A, and so if anyone has a question about what you heard or uh, anything that kind of dovetails with that, please feel free now, pass the mic around. Hey, uh, was a bit curious. Um, so we talked a, a, a lot about like leadership in terms of it is meant to be um, you uniting people, and I wanted to hear from you sort of the lens of like what it means to be a leader in a sense of like you actually uh, sacrificing yourself for the sake of others, similar to like how Christ has done for us. So like, I guess I'm just interested to hear from you, I guess that perspective of the self, uh, the sacrificing yourself for the flourishing of others and how that sort of like is modeled, if that question makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a brilliant question, thanks. And it's hard, first of all, I need to be honest with you. 
Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, it's interesting the language he uses there of I become all things to all men for the sake of the gospel. I think sometimes sacrificing myself, for, and it's interesting, when you look at the first few verses of chapter 9, he uses 15 rhetorical questions about certain rights Paul has. I was tempted to talk on that, but I like Vianney. You don't know our multi-trend politics. One, one of the difficult things when you come together as a community is that all of us have certain rights and legal rights and entitlements we have to. And the problem sometimes when you come together as a group is that no one is willing to move, right? I am, unless, unless you, I mean, in South Africa, we use this thing a lot of time because many black South Africans will say, listen, we suffered under apartheid, right? We, we don't have anything. Mandela went to jail, gave us freedom. We reached out with Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We said we want to build, therefore I want it's the turn of white people to, to move towards me. I am not moving. And that temptation is there. But when I read First Corinthians chapter 9, it's like it hits me so hard that as a Christian, I cannot have that attitude. I need to always be seeking the others out. I, I mean, it must, it must have been hard for Paul. Imagine you Jew all your life. You never touch unclean food. You don't even know the smell of bacon. And then you are invited by Gentiles to their homes. And you have to have table fellowship with them. And be with them for the sake of the gospel. And this gift of self-forgetfulness is something we need to work hard on as Christians. Where you say, you know what, I know I'm uncomfortable, but I'm going to try and hear others out. I'm going to listen, and before I judge to judgment, because some, sometimes when you come from different cultures, there are certain things you do that from my culture, they, they are like rude. And before I, ju I jump to judgment, I have to remember, Viani, you need to be a servant of all. Go and speak to the people and get to know them. I think the problem sometimes in Christian communities, the reason we don't do our in Christ identity well is that people are so hung up on their own rights. But Paul says he was willing to give up all those rights for the sake of the gospel. For some of us, it's even being willing to give up bitterness. And that's a hard part to say. I mean, when you go to South Africa at times, you still see the impact of the past. But that thing of saying, I'm called as a Christian, to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. I, I, I'm, I'm the best lawyer for my sins. There's always extenuating circumstances why I committed particular sins. And the Bible calls me to be a best lawyer for my brothers and sisters and say maybe they didn't mean it that way. Instead of me cutting them off, let me go to them. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Here's one more. Um, I'm thinking about the job interview process for a pa new pastor at my parents' church and about the process of moving to a new place, looking for a church, and you're, you know, you're just visiting and listening to the pastor and trying to discern whether this is a good leader, whether this is someone you can trust. What do you think it looks like with this new paradigm of leadership when we're, you know, just getting to know someone and trying to bring them in or see ourselves as part of their group. Um, do you think it takes changes even in how we think about that process and in what we're looking for to tell if someone isn't just charismatic but has good character? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a good question because I think one of the new things emphasized in this leadership approach is the group identity. First of all, is the, person, the church I'm joining a Bible-teaching church? It's not necessarily, I mean, I love Daniel. You know that, right? But he's a sinner who's saved by grace. Therefore, there needs for grace for him and the grace for me. We, there no one, my pastor once told me, Vianney, the day you find a perfect church, leave. <laughs> 
because you'll corrupt it with your own sin. There is no perfect church, but we need to look at are these people focusing our attention back to Jesus, our core identity, or are they growing the spotlight more to themselves? I think for me, that's what we, first thing, if I'm new in the place, I'll look for as well. And then I'll also look in terms of the community. Is this a community that loves each other and do life together? Uh, when you read church history, one of the key things by secular people, Christians were a weird bunch of people, but secular historians could look at them and say, these people love one another deeply from their heart. They call themselves brothers and sisters. It was weird. But there was this thing of, I don't understand this thing of the body of Jesus, sacrifice for you. It sounds weird, but they love one another. And their actions match this love they were talking about. I'm not sure if I answered. Okay. Thank you for um, what you're sharing with us. Um, my question is, how, how do you think we should reimagine power and authority in the church in light of the new psychology of leadership that you're sharing with us? Oh, that's a hard one, right? Uh, I think we need to redeem power, first of all. I, I think in the church, one of the things uh, we need to try to embrace is the brokenness of humanity outside Jesus. Um, and then in terms of power, I think we need to understand, you know, it's interesting, the job we are in is not about status, it's not about titles. It's, it's, we are called to serve, and, and, and I understand that difference in cultures, this will look differently. Uh, within our context in South Africa, for example, when we look for people who serve, we look at people we seem to be similar to what you find in First Timothy. The, the reputation the person has with outsiders. Have you guys noticed that when you look for elders? They need to have a good reputation with, not with necessarily with those in the church, but with outsiders, people who are known in communities they are part of. I think that goes a long way. I think also we need to look for people who are humble. All these things that the world is running away from. The temptation of the world is to boast, right, on their achievements. In fact, but 1 Corinthians, uh, is it 30, 31, tells you, don't boast upon anything except Jesus and him crucified, and that's our boast. So we need to look for people who are deliberately trying to embody the Christian values, who even vocabulary take us back to scriptures. One of my biggest fears is that sometimes the Bible tells us People in the last days will forget sound doctrine and go for what their itching ears want. For me as a Christian leader, that scares me. Because I also have to do this introspection all the time. Are people following because it's the work of the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin? Or are they following because of the itching ears? Now, I know I've not really fully answered your question. But I think also we need to look for leadership that embraces weakness. Um, because that's what the cross is. It's about the king of the universe. I mean, first of all, that's what the incarnation. I mean, the king of the universe deciding to be a babe. Can you imagine the humiliation of being changed, nappies, diapers, by someone you created? Being exposed to that, feeling hungry, limitations. But yet you uphold all things by your word. And Jesus embraced all of, and then not only did he embrace this frail body, which is actually nothing in big scheme of things. He actually chose to die the most horrific death where everyone despised and rejected him and spat on him. But yet, even in that moment, he didn't call the legion of angels to show his power. He actually still pleaded for the forgiveness of those who incited. I think 
maybe to sum it up, we need to look for humble leaders. One more. Thanks so much for your words tonight. Um, if, if there's anything we can take away for key considerations to apply these principles and aspects of Christian leadership in a world where Christianity is increasingly unpopular, how would you, what would you recommend for applying this outside the church, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, our families, our jobs? Yeah, I mean, let, let me do the first part where I, one of the things I'm excited about, I know many people don't like it. I love the fact that as Christians we are becoming outsiders in the world because the Bible describes us as, ex, as people in exile. I'm not sure if you met the refugees in how they never belong in the world, but they are always looking for a better place. And that would be who we are as Christians. But in, going back to your question, I think when you look at the Bible, even the household codes, for example, I think we first need to live our faith within the, the family context. I, for one, am so tired of people who have two personas, the church persona and the family persona. I think, first of all, we need a man who embodies the attributes of Jesus at home and lead from that point. It's so easy as a guy to lead a Sunday school at church and not lead family devotions. I mean, this is Christianity one-to-one, where the Word of God is not the center only at church when it's being preached. It becomes a center in our own families. Uh, where actually the family unit, that's where we see people living for Jesus. And I think also within the workplace, this attitude that we ought to have, I mean, Peter talking to his audience, he tells them, you know, we should show, like, live as foreigners and strangers in the world, but yet we are accompanied by these good deeds so that people don't persecute us for the evil we have done but we are people who actually look out for good deeds. Just to be always be mindful of others. There was a terrible prayer. It was a good prayer, but it was terrible to pray. Where at times I live and pray, Lord, help me to look for gospel opportunities today. And then when I'm tired after work, you sit next to someone and just the conversation just starts happening. And then you know this is the Lord's doing. He answers your prayer, so share the gospel with someone. But I think that thing of where we ask Jesus to help us to be his disciple, both at work, at home, and in everything we do. Christianity should not be disconnected to what we do on Sunday. Monday to Saturday should be a continuation of us living our lives in the worship of our kings. And people ought to see that in our conduct, in our character, and what we do as well. I'm not sure if. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Vian. Let's give him a hand. Thank you.